Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hi, everyone. I don't think I've ever done a, a lunchtime talk in a cinema, effectively. It feels like we're, we're inside a lovely um, dark space. So thank you for coming out of the sunshine and, uh, and into the dark and into, and into Kentridge's world, effectively. Um, my name's Lee Robb. I'm the curator of contemporary art here at the Art Gallery. And, uh, and uh, I'd like to acknowledge that we're holding this talk on Ghana land and to pay our respects to the elders, the Adelaide Plains, past, present and emerging. Great. So um, I thought we would, uh, we would, you know, I wanted to, to, to think about the exhibition and think about William Kentridge and his practice. And the, and the, the works that we're really um, enveloped by, uh, I think, encapsulate and show and so generously reveal so much of his practice and thinking and his influences, his process, and, uh, and really the relationship of the artist to the studio, a very sort of sacred, sanctuary, a space of, of, um, of working and thinking. And um, I guess as a, as a preamble, um, because the exhibition just opened on Friday night, and I know that many of you were here for the opening and have been here over the weekend and had the incredible opportunity to uh, see Joanna Dudley um, give a very radical tour of the exhibition, but which was also um, uh, it developed and created with William Kentridge and with his wishes. But um, I'm sure for those of you who are here, it, it sort of um, opened up the, uh, gave a tour like no other. Um, and and if you haven't, uh, and if there wasn't the chance to see that, you can you can catch uh, snips of that if you look online at Joanna Dudley. And there's a, a, a tour for soprano and handbag. I'd uh, I'd highly recommend it. But um, William Kentridge and this uh, this exhibition, um, it's a it's a major exhibition, which is uh, which brings together 34 works across um, across drawing, printmaking, uh, moving image, animation, uh, sculpture, and um, and tapestry, which really I guess gives you just a bit of a sense of you know I. I really think of um, William Kentridge as a polymath and, uh, and, and really um, a renaissance man of our times. Um, and the works that have been brought together in this incredible exhibition uh, are drawn uh, from the collection of Naomi Milgram, who has for over 20 years been collecting um, Kentridge's works and supporting major projects, commissions and operas of Kentridge also in conversation with William Kentridge himself. So the space, we're buffered by two fantastic spaces, which I hope you have time to spend in afterwards. One side is as, as an homage to Kentridge's own studio in um, the gallery outside here. And then behind us, there are the very real drawings um, and, and, the, and, and really the, um, uh, the effects and the gatherings of the making of, um, of, of some of the, the works that are here and the, what remains after making some of these works um, as well, which, um, which uh, brings elements of his studio to scale to us. Um, but uh, so there's so there's there's a, a deep relationship, and the studio is at the heart of this exhibition, and was at the heart of Kentridge's thinking in putting together this exhibition. 
he it's quite interesting because when um, when Kentridge talks about his upbringing and his journey to becoming an artist, he he has many different creation stories for himself as an artist, and he talks about you know asking what he wanted to be when he was four years old, and he said that he wanted to be an elephant. And when he was asked at the age of uh, 14 what he wanted to be, he said he wanted to be an orchestra conductor. At that time, someone said to him, well, if you want to be an orchestra conductor, you need to, you need to be able to read music. And uh, so he quickly disposed of that idea, and, and, he, and, he, uh, and he was like, well, both those ideas, being an elephant or an orchestra conductor, are both equally implausible. So he, but he realized that uh, drawing is something that he'd always been drawn to. Um, and uh, in, spite, in spite of his best efforts, to become many other things, he always came back to, to drawing. And uh, he studied art school in Johannesburg, um, and he was born in 1955 in Johannesburg, and he has lived in the same place um, ever since. He, 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 uh, he describes himself as maybe something akin to a medieval peasant because he hasn't journeyed more than six kilometers from where he was born. So uh, he, he's, uh, he's always chosen to, to stay and work and, um, and often represent Johannesburg and the, you know, the very sort of dry felt um, landscape that surrounds it in a, a gold, mining, uh, gold mining town that's been sort of gouged by, um, by, by by gold mining over the years, but um, after studying um, after studying at art school, he um, again he he and he he describes it. Um, he, Kentridge, more than anyone, is more articulate than than um, than anyone who can talk about Kentridge. Uh, so I would, you know, I'd recommend the the immense amount of uh, you know podcasts and and YouTube videos and interviews with him that exist online um, to to listen to. But he he said that he never felt that he deserved to be an artist um, because of the sort of responsibilities that come with with that. Um, so uh, in his twenties, he decided that he would try and become an actor. So he went to Paris and studied at uh, at a theatre school and uh, for um, uh, physical and movement studies. And he said that after three weeks, he realised that he could not be an actor. So uh, he, he did stay there for a year and, and he says a lot of the things that he learned have um, burrowed their way into, into his practice, but, um, but, but it, was, it was clear to him that, that acting wasn't for him. He went back to Johannesburg and he became part of, um, he worked in the South African um, film and television industry, working in a, doing a lot of uh, set design, and, um, but he said really what he was doing was just moving around furniture for friends, and uh, and so again he he came back to the the tabla rasa and came back to the the white page and uh, and back to and back to drawing, and um, and then um, and then you know in her, at the age of thirty decided that he had no other skills and couldn't get a job in any other place, and so ended up um, you know. Uh, 
uh, becoming uh, an, an artist and really and really sticking to that. And um, and so it was through the early drawings and, and animations that he that he made his mark. And um, I can still remember the very first William Kentridge exhibition that I saw when I was in my early twenties in Milan and at one of his first shows in in a small gallery called Lea Ruma, and they were very humble charcoal drawings um, on a wall, and they were um, very you know included with some which are quite similar to the to the work which is behind us over there um, and and is very much a sense of looking out in the the sort of the felt um, around uh, Johannesburg um, around there but um, but also in those drawings there was uh, there, there was also a, a stage set as well and um, and he was already looking into that space of of the of the theater and thinking about both his role um, as um, you know as a draftsman as um, as, a, as a designer and as a choreographer um, of, of parts and of, of images and um, and you could see that he was thinking about that space the sort of proscenium the space between the audience and the and the work um, and between the artist and the world and that brings us to this particular work or groups of group of works that we're, we're amidst because um, Kentridge likes to describe the studio as a membrane between himself and the world and that the studio, the artist studio is the place where um, the illogical um, and the non-linear can thrive, that things can move in, um, in different directions, they can undo themselves and that the, you know, the, the, the usual arguments don't suffice anymore and he often talks about the the, the space and the, the way of getting to even beginning in the studio and for him that's as much a part of the making as as coming to this work and there's a there's a there's a work that I'll draw your attention to in the gallery adjacent which is called Paco de Tellier which is the um, which is a, a map of the studio or a journey around the studio. And it's an important sort of preamble to, to this work because he, um, you know, he, I think he's generously brought us into these spaces so that we can come with him on the journey of making. And he says, you have the drawing, the fact of the drawing, and you have the making of the drawing. And the drawing itself is a record of the history of its making. But there's also a preamble to the drawing which is invisible on the drawing. This has to do with the gathering of the energy for the beginning of the mark of the drawing. With me, that's circling the studio. Many laps walking around the studio trying to gather the energy and the muscles in the impulse before the paper is even touched. It's the circling and the gathering of energy interrupted by procrastinations, by looking at an email, by choosing which piece of music to listen to, by making a cup of tea, by putting the cat out, by changing the music, by checking email once more, until there is a circling and a gathering and an energy arrives for the first impulse to be made. And from that impulse, the drawing becomes visible. And I think that energy is really what, um, and, and making visible that energy which is at stake in, in the works around the room. So, so the, the four um, projections um, on this side of the wall and the three, and, uh, and the two here and the one behind you, form a work which is, which is called Seven Fragments for George, uh, for George Melez. 
And they're accompanied and have been added to over the years. They were created in, um, in 2003 by, by two works which are sort of in dialogue with each other. One is called From Day to Night and the one behind us is called Journey to the Moon. And Kentridge, um, you know, has, uh, you know, an, an extraordinary um, CV and history of, 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 making, of making works, including directing operas from Shostakovich's The Nose to um, working on The Magic Flute to most recently um, Wozzeck. Um, and, um, but... Uh, but he was very interested and very taken by the character of Georges Melez. And many of you will know his, um, and uh, you, you'll know images of his from one of the first moving image works um, in the, the, at the very turn of the century, around 1890, 1896, where um, Georges Melez made, made a very short, silent film called um, Journey to the Moon, and the work behind us is an homage to, to that. And um, Georges Melez is a very interesting and very important character in the development of, um, of, uh, of film and the, and the moving image and cinematography. He, was actually, he actually bought Robert Houdini's studio. He was a magician and an illusionist, as well as being a great pioneer of, um, of cinematography. And each of the fragments that you can see on the wall here um, are responding to different techniques that um, Melez was the first person to, to, to invent and, and, uh, and work with. So I'm sure, as you can see here, one of them is, uh, and this work is called um, Invisible Repair. And so you can see on the far left here um, that Kentridge is, is, uh, is, 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 is making the work, but obviously in, in reverse. So he's, he's, uh, he's creating a work by stitching it back together, but seamlessly, um, with an invisible um, repair. And, um, and in, in, other, uh, in other works here, you can see that, uh, that uh, and, and also erasure was also very important. And these were some of the, the, the tricks and techniques of um, Melez as a magician, is that he would, you know, he would also film a couple of frames and then erase or, um, or, or tear open a space which would lead you into another, an, an, another dimension or, or sort of reveal a space behind it. And in the same way, you can see that you know, um, Kentridge is using these devices, but in the 21st century, just over 100 years later, um, and Georges Melez had also seen the very first moving image works by the Lumiere brothers in 1895. And by 1896, he was already using some of those techniques. And I think by 1897, he'd already made 87 short films, um, including his most favorite one, Journey to the Moon. But I think um, some of the other techniques that you can see are erasure, and the way that Kentridge makes is he's filmed them either with a 16 millimeter um, camera or 35 millimeter camera that he sets up in his studio. And he said for many years when he was trying to make these works, he would try and cover up the erasure. You know, the mark left once he rubbed out the charcoal so that it, it became, you know, invisible and not demonstrated, but the, in this work, this homage to Melez, he also wanted to um, he also wanted to show the, the the making as well as some of those techniques, the erasure, the disappearance, the invisible mending, and also things shown in reverse, um, which is you know particularly here um, the work where he's 
catching books and uh, and uh, you know sort of effortlessly making this. But obviously, this work was filmed and then shown in reverse. And he said this is when his um, his learnings from uh, from theatre school came into effect because they had to do these takes many many times to make it look intuitive and natural to be catching a book. So he had to throw a book in a way that that made it um, in reverse look like it was it was meant to be doing this but he he sort of said he came to this particular technique of showing himself and bringing himself into the space when he was working on um, a set design for a friend and he was um, he was doing the backdrop and his friend set up a time-lapse camera to capture um, to you know so it takes it takes still photos um, you know, every every minute or every every couple of minutes, and then when he was um, when he was uh, playing it back, um, he was you're able to watch the whole making of an entire set in a matter of minutes, as opposed to the the eight hours that it might have taken to to watch it, for example. And it sort of condenses it and creates like a a small moving image with all of those stills running one after the other. And um, and Kendrick says it was a process of seeing of 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 watching himself making. And a particular incident in the studio with his with one with his son who was about um, you know who was about six at the time, and the work behind us that's just about um, you can see there's a bowl of ink that's over there um, and a clean sheet of paper at the moment, and you'll 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 sort of see what what um, transpires um, the sort of unmaking of a of a work, but there's a there's a a bowl of ink behind it, and his son was in the in the studio, and they had the camera running, and um, and this is beautiful that he's using a duster to sort of clean up the image and to you know to 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 erase and uh, and 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 uh, bring bring the page back back to white. But um, his son had uh, was was holding this uh, bowl of ink and tripped and spilt. A whole bowl of ink against him, um, uh, you know, on the wall on one of um, Kentridge's drawings, and uh, and they'd filmed it, and then they sort of watched it back again in reverse, and um, and you know, his son was like, "Dad, this is the best. Can we do it again?" <laughs> and he was like, "Only once you've cleaned this up." But um, but uh, accidents and uh, and and sort of making visible those accidents in the studio become um, you know become. Uh, you know, essential to to, to Kentridge's um, making, and and of course, you know, with the work behind us, which is Journey to the Moon, it's both a, a an homage to, um, and this this you know, balancing act with the with the chair, um, in, in in the studio, and all of the images sort of appearing on on the wall. He's also referencing some some you know Charlie Chapman and Buster Keaton as well, and sort of using a, a coffee a coffee espresso cup as um, as a telescope, um, yeah, and and as a as a as a nod to the absurd is also is also shown um, shown in the work, and. Um, when you come out of here and you see the, there's a work um, that is parallel to this on the back wall outside this in that beautiful library space behind us where you can read all of Kentridge's catalogues. Um, many of these images appear and they're on a one-to-one -one scale um, and, uh, and 
Kentridge was reading uh, the book of, uh, reading a lot of uh, literature and is very informed by literature, but particularly the writings of um, Jorge Luis Borges. And Borges was the director of the Biblioteca Nacional in um, Buenos Aires, and also famous for writing a book called Labyrinths and quite a, and a series of other um, short stories, which are um, uh, come from a sort of, uh, he defined uh, magical realism um, in literature. And uh, there's, a, there's a particular, there's a couple of references that Kentridge uh, discusses with that work. Um, and one is, um, one is a story um, of a cartographer, a very ambitious cartographer. And often map making comes heavily into, into Kentridge's work. Um, but it was a, a cartographer who wanted to create a one-to-one -one scale map of the world. And, and in a way, um, when uh, you know the, the the work on the back wall behind us outside um, is is a one-to-one -one scale of a work that was made in Kentridge's studio to be able to create all of the works that you can that you can see here, and um, and often you know I feel like he is as ambitious in in the way that he is able to to chart history, think about time and relativity, and recently has spent a lot of time working with a very famous um, uh, uh, scientist and and expert on relativity and Einstein called Peter Gallison to think about the relationship of time and duration in in the artwork and um, and you can you can see how how he how he does that with with these with these works and his um, his uh, you know the relationship between each each element often you'll find that there are a lot of trees that you that will appear in Kentridge's work and they're touchstones because um, you know the relationship between the charcoal, which is burnt, you know, which is carbon created from compressed charcoal from a, from a tree, which he then uses on paper, which has also come from a tree, which is then made into another work. And you know his idea of thinking about a tree and all of the projections that we all put on that are are all sort of embedded, and that's why we often see these trees repeated. So you'll notice them, um, and you'll also see man uh, figures of himself metamorphosizing into a tree as well and so you know that relationship between himself the drawing the outside world um, you know they keep doing sort of um, full circle as well as being interested in in um you know, in, in the universe and in constellations and in theory, in, in those theories. And this is how this extraordinary work that you've been watching play out behind me, which is from day to night. And again, it's using, a, it's a, a technique of um, digital um, inversion. So these are tiny, tiny little ants that um, over a particular period, Kentridge had to train by, by leading a trail of, of sugar water around and then you would see that, that the, that the and to, to lead an army of ants into, uh, to, to create these incredible constellations. Um, and, and then by, and you can see where they gather around the certain areas where, where he's, he's trailed um, sugar water. Um, and then, um, and then at the end, he's inverted it digitally so that that the white ants on the black paper become like a, a constellation um, in the sky. So um, very clever um, on, <laughs> on <laughs> to to even be able to con to conceive of that. Um, how are we going? Oh, I only got a few a few more minutes. Um, I thought we would just 
talk about these particular works and the different processes and, and be able to sort of unpack them and spend, spend some time just with these. And there is a particular work outside, the Parcours d'Atelier, and in the space outside that, you know, I encourage you to, um, to, to spend time with because it, it sort of captures the movement in, in, in the studio. But um, I might just open it up to, um, to some questions. I know it's only the first few days since the exhibition has been open, so there's, uh, there's a lot, to, oh, there's a lot to, to take in. But um, I think I might just open it up, because I know there's been a lot of questions from, it, from a lot of guides. And if I can, I'll try and, I'll try and answer some of them. But, um, but yeah, so yeah, thank you. Are there any questions? There's always questions. <laughs> oh, yeah, great. Yes, I guess that... I guess in terms of living, he, he, um, he, didn't, he didn't live for an extended period overseas. So, um, yeah. Oh, okay, I guess you're right. You're in Paris. Yeah, you got me. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, he has. His wife is originally from Australia. I guess it was maybe a poetic, uh, you know, I was re repeating something that I'd heard from him say, um, how he described himself as someone who ultimately has never lived an extended period overseas. He studied for a while in Paris, and then he travels all the time. He's peripatetic. He's constantly somewhere else. But his home and his studio, he has a studio in his garden where he works um, on the drawings and on, on some of these works, and then he has a much larger studio in the centre of Johannesburg where he works on the bigger um, you know, performances and set design and, um, and sculpture, like, like some of the, the larger sculptures that you can see here, and has a bigger team there. But, for, but he's, never, he's never lived for an extended period, or he's never moved um, to live in another place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and yeah. Yeah, great. Mm. Yeah. yeah. The house he lives in now is six k's from his parents' house and from where he was born. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, not to be more specific. Yeah. Yeah, and also at the time of you know he's lived through a part before through and in post-apartheid South Africa. And so in this particular room, maybe just the references to, to Johannesburg and Africa are, are found in the, in the landscape, but in many of the other works throughout the, the, the exhibition, um, the particularly Tide Table, which is one of the works outside um, in the, the third room out from here, that's really looking at um, uh, uh, the, the first... Um, the first post-apartheid uh, prime minister's um, healthcare um, impacts on on um, on the country, and in other cases, he Ubu and the Truth Commission, and the way that he's used Shostakovich's The Nose, um, you know, they're they're reflections on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in post-apartheid South Africa, and he talks you know deeply about the absurdity of apartheid and what that meant, the impact of it. He also grew up as the son of um, uh, three generations of lawyers as well, um, Jewish lawyers, and and the, and both his parents worked on um, the um, Steve Biko inquiry and also on the trial for Nelson Mandela. So there's um, he's deeply connected to to those moments in time and to South Africa.